Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lance Miller, Vice President of Conservation Science and Animal Welfare Research with the Chicago Zoological Society Brookfield Zoo. On this episode, we're going to be discussing a paper Dr. Miller and his colleagues published last year about the welfare of cetaceans in accredited zoos and aquariums. This paper and subsequent phone app that was developed as part of it are truly shaping the future of how we'll work with cetaceans in managed care facilities. So let's jump right in. Hi, Dr. Miller. Welcome to Aquadox. Thank you for the invitation. Glad to be here. Absolutely. I'm super excited to talk about this research project because I almost joined the team a couple years ago and so was very invested in the results. Before we got there, could you share an experience with our listeners that has helped shape where you are today? I was very fortunate early in my career working at Disney's Animal Kingdom back when it first opened and got to work with a whole bunch of really dedicated and passionate individuals that really helped shape my career. I started off as an education presenter. On the weekends, I would go down to Tampa Bay, Florida and volunteer my time collecting behavioral data on bottlenose dolphins to help the graduate student. A research position opened up, I applied for it, and they took a chance with me, which was amazing. Started off as a research associate, worked my way up to research manager, and kind of hit a plateau in my career and realized I couldn't go any further until I went back to school. And that's when I went back and went to the University of Southern Mississippi to get my master's degree and my PhD. I'm curious what your favorite animal was to talk about at Disney's Animal Kingdom, because I too used to work there for a little bit of time. That's a great question. So one of the things that Disney is known for is their magic moments. And one of the things that we created while I worked there was a behind the scenes tour on Kilimanjaro Safari. And so first thing in the morning, we would go out and randomly select a family and take them over to the Kilimanjaro Safari and they'd be the only group on the safari. And it was not your typical safari speech. It was me actually talking about the research that went on behind the scenes. So it was always a lot of fun just to give people that extra magical experience. I have goosebumps right now. Magic moments were probably my favorite thing. And then you went on to pursue your master's and your PhD. What was that focused in? So I did both in experimental psychology. For my master's, I looked at what the impacts of dolphin shows and interaction programs were on the dolphins themselves. And then for my PhD, I looked at what the impacts of those types of programs were on the people that were visiting. So what we found was that across the board, overall positive, looking at the entire groups of dolphins, that data were collected at six different facilities around the United States. We saw following shows and interaction programs, we saw things like an increase in behavioral diversity, high energy behaviors, increase in play behavior, all things that would be associated with positive welfare. And then for the guest side of things, what we found was that both were positive, but the interaction programs had a stronger effect. And what we think that might be attributed to is the fact that A, people get up closer to the animals and B, programs are typically longer in duration. So it could be just that longer exposure that might be having that effect. But during the study, we weren't able to tease apart the exact reason. And were you looking at the short-term effects on these individuals, like immediately after a program, or were you able to look at more longer-term effects? Great question. So we actually looked at both. So we did a short-term survey, which was immediately following their program or their show. And then we also did follow-up surveys three months later to see if there was a longer impact. And excitingly, people actually reported engaging in more conservation-related behavior three months down the road than they did at the beginning of the programs. So 
impact on knowledge, impact on their attitudes towards conservation, and then also an impact on their self-reported conservation-related behavior. That's amazing. I feel like that's why we go into this industry for those outcomes. So really cool that you worked on a study that actually demonstrated that. Yeah, it was super fun. Really great experience. So let's talk about the study because it's clear that you've had an interest in this type of work from an earlier age. And now here you are working on this very big study that I think is going to have some significant impact on the marine mammal industry. Yeah, what's great about this study is I think it really does show the collective interest in the accredited zoos and aquariums coming together to focus on continuous improvement in animal welfare. We worked with 43 different facilities in seven different countries around the world, and all of them were either accredited by the Alliance for Marine Mammal Parks and Aquariums or the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Before we go into the details, what's the punchline? What was the big takeaway from this project? So again, it's all about continuous improvement. So part one of the study, we created a new IOS application called Zoo PhysioTrack and a veterinarian or an animal care staff member at any facility around the world can get this app for free. They open it up and they actually have access to common and novel indicators of health and welfare, where it's going to be reference intervals or values, depending on the number of animals for that species. But we looked at four different species, common bottlenose dolphins, Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins, beluga whales, and Pacific white-sided dolphins. Part two of the study, we only focused on bottlenose dolphins because of purely a sample size issue. And what we wanted to do was look at what factors correlated with things that we thought were indicative of animal welfare. So social behavior, affiliated behavior, behavioral diversity, energy expenditure, habitat use. And so we collected a whole bunch of data and looked at how these different things related to most likely indicators of animal welfare. And what we found was that things like environmental enrichment programs and social management were much more important or more closely related to those indicators of welfare than things like the sheer size of the habitat. So it's important, obviously, to have habitats that are big enough for the animals to engage in species-appropriate behavior. But what's more important is making sure that you have those really robust enrichment programs and you're managing the animals socially, similar to how they'd be in the wild. And before we go any further, can you define welfare in the context of your study? Great question. So when I think of animal welfare, I think about a continuum and that continuum goes from poor to thriving. I like the term thriving because I think those of us that work in zoos and aquariums go above and beyond just doing good. And again, getting back to those standards that we were talking about earlier. So again, when I think of welfare, I think of that continuum and While we can't measure welfare directly, we use indicators of welfare. And so those were the things that we were looking at. So things like behavioral diversity. If you're not familiar, behavioral diversity, the idea is that if animals have high behavioral diversity, we're likely meeting their behavioral needs. If their behavioral diversity is low, likely they are either stereotyping or lethargic, which both can be signs of compromised welfare. And it's all based on a lot of the research that's been done on behavioral restriction. And when you're saying behavioral diversity, you're discussing actions that the animals are taking on their own without any cues or requests from the trainers. Correct. So when dolphins are being dolphins. Gotcha. We also looked at affiliative behavior, energy expenditure. So we partnered with the engineering department at the University of Michigan to develop what's called an M-tag or a movement tag. And two dolphins at each facility were trained to wear these tags 
a couple of times throughout the study. And through algorithms written again by the engineering group at the University of Michigan, we were able to use algorithms to calculate how far a dolphin swam within a certain period of time, how much energy they were expending, really looking to see do dolphins really swim long distances when they're in a zoo or an aquarium habitat. And what we found was that the dolphins swam longer distances on average in the study compared to dolphins in Sarasota. Really? Wow. And when you say distances... So the total kilometers traveled over a period of time. And that was typically during the daytime hours when staff were present. That's fascinating. I mean, and well, the Sarasota dolphins, you know, are more residential and they stay in one specific area, but a lot of times you would think that they would be traveling a lot more. That's really cool. It's not too surprising just because, again, getting back to those high standards, if you're accredited, you're required to have an enrichment program and make sure that it's a robust enrichment program. And so all of the things that our staff do on a day-to-day basis, it's absolutely amazing how well these animals are cared for. And because of that, they're likely traveling longer distances because they're providing those opportunities within the zoo and aquarium environment. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So you came into the study with these ideas of these are the ways that welfare is defined for bottlenose dolphins and some of the other marine mammals that you looked at. And then how did you set up a system such that 43 different institutions across multiple countries were able to collaborate on this? So credit to Dr. Lisa Lauderdale. She's a scientist at the Brookfield Zoo. She actually coordinated all of this and did an absolutely amazing job. So I've only done one other large study like this, but I've never had to coordinate anything like this. And so just a huge credit to her for all of her efforts working on getting the permits to import samples and working with all of the different individuals and making sure that they had the resources that they needed to collect the samples and just everything. She did an absolutely amazing job. And when you're saying samples, you were taking blood samples, fecal samples, and everything was being run in your lab back in Chicago? So the blood samples actually went to two different labs. One was Cornell. The other one was a university in Mexico. We were concerned that we wouldn't be able to get the samples out quick enough to get them run. So, but everything else actually was shipped to Cornell and all the fecal samples from all the sites came to the Brookfield Zoo for analysis. So all of these facilities, you're taking biological samples, you're having them wear the M trackers. What other types of measurements were you trying to take? We also collected video for behavioral purposes. So if we wanted to look at something like behavioral diversity that we were talking about, all of that was scored through video. And so staff at each of the facilities were responsible for collecting that video and all of it was downloaded onto a hard drive and then shipped to us at Brookfield Zoo for analysis. And the 43 institutions, was that something that you just sent notifications out and anyone was able to participate or how did you select facilities? I spent a lot of time on the phone, to be honest. It wasn't hard. It was just a quick phone call to each of the facilities. Um, Because again, I think this really shows the collective commitment of accredited zoos and aquariums to the continuous improvement in cetacean welfare. Yeah, it wasn't difficult to get people to participate. And I think the fact that we had 43 facilities in seven countries really demonstrates that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I first saw those numbers, I was extraordinarily impressed. Great. So let's transition to the results. So you mentioned before that you saw increased behavioral diversity. So what types of behaviors were you noticing in these animals? So again, with behavioral diversity, what we're looking at is a wide range of different behaviors. The goal is for every additional behavior observed, that's potentially one less behavior that the animals are motivated to perform that they don't have the opportunity to. And so that's kind of the 
higher level concept of behavioral diversity. And so some of the things that we saw, things like the frequency of providing new enrichment, the scheduling of enrichment, how you manage the animals socially. So in the wild, dolphins live in a fission fusion society. They're always breaking up into smaller groups and then joining back into bigger groups. And one of the things that we found is that that same principle applies within a zoo environment. So having the animals where they're split up and then brought back together in a group correlated with a couple of those different indicators of welfare that we previously discussed. And I know you also looked at distinctions between in different sex groups. So were you also finding that within you know, specific like male-male arrangements or female groups? So we actually didn't look at the configurations themselves specifically, just how they were managed socially. There were so many different configurations that it would have been too difficult to tease that apart. So we took a kind of a more broad approach to it, looking at just how they were managed socially. And then I thought one of the interesting things of the study that I had never thought about before was the use of habitat space with respect to like the top third of an environment and the bottom third. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that aspect? So the idea we had by breaking it up into the top third and bottom third to look at that was the idea of kind of exploration, how much of the habitat are the dolphins actually using? And we wanted to see if there were different management techniques or enrichment or training that potentially led to animals using different parts of the habitat. Something that's often thought to be an indicator of welfare is exploration. And so if dolphins are using more of their habitat, likely that's indicative that they're exploring more of the environment. Okay. So you're you're seeing the bottom third more as opportunity to explore. Correct. Okay. I was curious because you're getting most of that tactile enrichment or interaction with the trainers at the top third. So I was curious if there was any thought to bottom third being seen as like avoidance or social alone time versus that interaction time in the top third. You're exactly right. I mean, there's a huge reward about the top part of the habitat. The animal care staff does an amazing job working with these animals and building those personal relationships. So this was more about just looking at, again, exploration and how much of the habitat are they using. And you looked at dive duration as well. Was that built into this part? So we also looked at dive duration. And the goal behind that was to look at how much time they're spending underwater. So again, you mentioned that they may spend a lot of time at the surface because they have those great personal relationships with the animal care staff. But if we're looking at dive duration, that would give us an idea that they're not spending time at the surface as much. Okay. And where does this go next? Dr. Lauderdale is currently working on our next manuscript that'll come out from this study and looking at just overall activity budgets. So if you're a bottlenose dolphin in an accredited zoo or an aquarium, how do you spend your time? That'll be super helpful. I first learned about activity budgets when I was studying for the AVMA's welfare competition, where veterinary students and and other professionals in the animal care field can learn about welfare. And, you know, I didn't realize just how important that is to assessing the general welfare of an animal. So that'll be very, very cool. We'll have to keep up to date on that paper. Yeah, it'll give us another kind of reference range, if you want to call it that. So again, if you are an animal care staff member working at a dolphin or an aquarium, you'll have that information to know, okay, this is on general what a normal healthy dolphin does throughout a given day. And so we'll have that information available for everyone. Very cool. And I wanted to ask about another aspect. So I know the study looked at using novel enrichment, so enrichment these animals haven't seen before or enrichment that multiple animals can use at the same time. So what were some of the big takeaways from those aspects? So our most recent publication, we actually found that providing any one type of enrichment no more than 15 times in a month 
was correlated with activity levels. So if you want to make sure that your animals are nice and active, getting the exercise that they need to be healthy, rotating through your enrichment and only providing the same type of enrichment 15 days out of a month or approximately 50% of the days is what's going to be best. Oh, that's really interesting. I recently worked at Brookfield Zoo and they followed that ratio with their enrichment. I hadn't seen something quite like that before, and it was really neat to see that your research had an impact right away. Yeah, definitely. Rita Stacy and her staff over at the Seven Seas do an amazing job, and they took what was originally a very robust enrichment program and improved it even more based on the results from the study. Yeah, it was very, very cool to see firsthand. Um, I was very impressed with the entire program. So let's transition a little bit to more of the health parameters. You mentioned the app before, which we can chat about in a second, because that is super cool. But what were some of the big takeaways from the baseline blood and fecal and, and other data that you were collecting? I think what was impressive is typically if you're creating health or welfare reference intervals or values, again, depending on the sample size, most studies don't do as thorough of a job of making sure that the animals were healthy as we did. So Dr. Mike Walsh actually did a blinded review of a veterinary exam for every single dolphin and looked at cytology slides to make sure that all the animals were actually healthy and any animals that he deemed weren't in his mind healthy were removed from those reference intervals and values. So it's a really nice, complete set of common and novel indicators of health and welfare where the animals were known to be healthy. That's amazing. And I mean, such an important tool for professionals around the world who are working with these animals to, to use and reference. Yeah, we've gotten a lot of really good feedback on it. So hopefully everyone is finding it to be very useful. Yeah, I mean, I've downloaded the app and I've perused it and it's amazing. You can put in the sex of the animal that you're looking at, the age, even down to the, the years and month. And then you can ask for, do you want hematology? So do you want the red blood cell counts or the white blood cell counts? Do you want chemistry values? It's a really impressive tool that's going to make a huge impact in this community. So thank you for helping to put this together. Yeah, actually, I would like to thank one of the Chicago Zoological Society volunteers. His name is Kevin Mitchell. He does software programming for a living, but he also volunteers for the Brookfield Zoo, and he actually was the one that developed the app for us. So huge thank you to him. That's amazing. Well, Kevin, a huge shout out to you. Thank you so much for putting that together. And so now that the study is done, I know you're working on other papers, but what are the next steps after this? So the nice thing is, is we have this amazing data set to continue to try to answer questions that will help us from an application standpoint. Again, getting back to that idea of continuous improvement. So we've got the health and welfare indicators, the reference intervals and values for the health and welfare indicators. We've got different things that we know correlate with indicators of welfare for bottlenose dolphins. Like I said, we're getting ready to submit for publication a manuscript looking at activity budgets. So it's all about either A, finding things that correlate with indicators of welfare so that institutions know these are changes that will likely result in a positive benefit for the animals, or it's creating new tools that institutions can use to, again, focus on continuous improvement in animal welfare. Do you foresee applying this type of study design to other species outside of cetaceans? We would love to, but... This type of study, just the size and scope of it is really time consuming and expensive. And so we were very fortunate to get an Institute for Museum and Library Services grant to fund the cetacean welfare study. And there's a possibility we could apply to look at other species as well in a similar fashion. But what we're finding with the cetacean welfare study is very similar to what we found on the elephant welfare study that was done probably eight years ago now. But again, it gets back to the idea that 
all of the things that our amazing animal care staff do in terms of the enrichment and the training and the social management, all of that is what seems to be most important for providing good levels of animal welfare. And so my guess is those same concepts would apply to other species as well. Well, we'll have to keep our eyes peeled for those studies. Last question. Do you have any advice for our student listeners? Definitely. What I always tell people that are interested, and my guess is this goes for veterinarians as well, is get as much experience early on in your career as possible through volunteering your time at a zoo or an aquarium or maybe an education center and do all of the things that are going to set you apart from other candidates when you're going after those positions. So going after grant funds, publishing in peer-reviewed journals, presenting at national and international conferences. There's lots of things that people can be doing to build up their resume or their CV, which are going to make them that much more qualified and the candidates that people are going to want to select. Awesome. Really, really great advice. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Lance Miller for being on the show this week, our sponsors WAVMA and AAFE, as well as all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, Check out our Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got an extra moment, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.